Welcome to the Be Free RE podcast, where you learn how to make your job optional. I'm your host, John, who's just getting started on his journey. But in the last year, I moved across the country, bought four apartments, make money as a landlord, no longer pay rent, and I have my first child. I'm joined by your co-host and my guide, Tony Angotti, who in five years quit his job and now manages over 80 units through a combination of house hacks, flips, and partnerships. So with that, let's jump into how you can do less of what you have to do and more of what you want to do. Tony, (laughs) who you got for president? Bernie, Biden, Trump? Michelangelo, the orange teenage mutant ninja turtle. Yeah. He seems like a pretty good pick. I think we're just going to go to hyperinflation. We're printing all this money, throwing it out of helicopters for COVID. So there will be no president. It's going to be postponed. Hey, but if you, if you invest in real estate, rent hypothetically paces inflation. I heard a good point. Somebody else mentioned it, that being invested in real estate is like betting on capitalism. <laughs> so as long as you think that capitalism will continue as the country's economy, hmm. real estate will hold pretty well with that long term. And I thought about it and I was like, how could I break that up a little bit? I was like, can't really, because even if inflation goes up, your rent's going to go up too. So, hmm. Yeah, I'm not smart enough we'll to see. figure all that out, but I am glad we have, uh, we're not all in equities right now. <laughs> That's all uh, that. Yeah, I I deleted all of my stock accounts. I am not looking at them. Oh, I thought you meant you just sold everything. I was like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> no, I didn't delete everything. It's just sell low, buy high. That sounds like sounds like the best strategy to life. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of life, what do we have going on in our life for the next thirty minutes or 30 so? Minutes. All right, we're gonna answer some calls about expenses, capital expenses, maintenance expenses, vacancy expenses, and everyone's favorite recurring question: groceries, con- contractors. <laughs> How do okay. I deal with contractors? Why do they call so much? And why do they never show up when they say they will? So, with that, let's actually jump into our first question. Unless you want to talk about groceries more. Nah, I got my TP. I'm good. All right. Glad to hear it. Here we go. Hi, this is Ian from Pittsburgh. And I was wondering uh, what numbers you guys use to determine like capital expenditures and uh, repairs and maintenance and vacancy rates. And is there like a specific number you use or is there an algorithm that, that you use that maybe I can use in my business? Uh, thanks for answering my question. Have a good day. All the good stuff here. So estimating expenses. People kind of overestimate or underestimate these things all the time. Um, we've got CapEx and repairs were the first two things you asked about. Repairs, I generally just start at 5% of rents, but as you get more units, you'll get some good data together about how much stuff costs, and sometimes as time goes on, that goes lower because if you use vendors consistently, the price of using those vendors will go down as long as you treat them well. For CapEx, what I usually look at is we've actually got a spreadsheet where We take the cost to replace a certain item, so like a furnace or something like that, and then we divide that by how long it it lasts. So an average furnace lasts about 20 to 25 years, so we'll calculate a monthly amount to replace that over time 
um, based on the cost and the like of livelihood. So then for each building, we can just look at how many of each there are and then come up with a monthly cost for that building for how much to withhold for CapEx. That also kind of impacts what you're doing for repairs because you can look at how long you think you're going to keep the building. In my case, these buildings were keeping pretty much forever, so we just do a monthly cost and then kind of withhold that every month. Vacancy rates, that's a little bit different of a conversation because it's going to depend where you are and your unit. I mean, if you're keeping a dump, uh, place that you're never fixing up, pretty crappy place, and then you're trying to charge a high rent, you're going to get people leave all the time. But if you're pricing your place accordingly, people aren't going to leave too often. As a good starting point, uh, we're usually looking at 5 to 8% of the rents monthly for vacancy. Um, so that's kind of what we're withholding. But in practice, that number is as low as possible. I mean, zero to three percent in practice, because once we start giving those renewal notices out to the tenants, we're marketing them for a new tenant before that person even leaves. So we got that next person lined up. We also have some other things to kind of keep people happy. I think we got another listener that called in with a question about that, so I'll I'll touch on that a little bit in that question. Uh, long story short, just make sure you're withholding some some reserves, or this is going to get real stressful. You don't want to have to start selling kidneys, livers, lungs, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I guess lung, if you sold lungs, plural, you uh, wouldn't have much of an investment portfolio left because you wouldn't be alive. So that's that um, stupid answer there. I don't know why I finished it like that. All right. So to summarize, about 5% for CapEx, but you're going to have to triangulate and use a spreadsheet on uh, basically cost of replacement and life of a uh, capital expense to really get deep on there. But 5% is a decent rule of thumb. Uh, I heard another 5 to 8% for vacancy. And then repairs is going to vary depending on uh, kind of your your product and how you're maintaining your house. Does that sound right, Tony? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, and then there's other expenses too that come up, like you have property management, for instance, even if you're not, uh, even if you don't have an outside property manager, you still wanna budget at least 5% just for maybe in the future you do wanna hire somebody. Our area is typically between eight and 12% per month and then a bunch of other leasing fees. I'm sure we'll talk on property management more detailed in another episode or another day. Um, the other thing that people miss too is like all your municipal related expenses. So a lot of times every small local area usually charges things a little bit differently, whether they have like rental licenses or other stuff. Um, you have to call wherever you're buying to get that information. Yeah, that sounds good. How do you feel about the 50% rule? Um, to be honest, it actually isn't that bad. I mean, as a rule of thumb, it's somewhat close a lot of times. Uh, our buildings usually operate somewhere between 40 and 50% expense ratio, which is just the fancy term for whatever the 50% rule is. Expenses not related to the mortgage is what the 50% rule is. So anything, not the mortgage, taxes, insurance, maintenance, repairs, whatever, uh, the rule of thumb is that 50% of your property's revenue will go towards those expenses. Um, and in our portfolio, like I said, we operate between 40 and 50% on a given building. So the 50% rule is not too bad. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good place to start, and then you can get more sophisticated and dial your numbers in from there. So, awesome. Let's jump into our next question. Hi, this is Dustin from Pittsburgh, and I've heard many conflicting things on, such as on Bigger Pockets and other sites and resources about maintenance and capex expenses, and I just wanted to to see, like, how much should I actually be putting away for these on a monthly basis per rental property? Thanks. Yeah, so, I mean, this is kind of a follow-up to the first question that we had there about just expenses in general, but we can talk a little bit more detailed about that here. Um, When it comes to CapEx and maintenance, like I said, you can make a spreadsheet and you can do that sort of thing, but... What you need to understand is that a lot of this is also going to depend on what kind of building you're buying. So, for instance, in Pittsburgh, we have older buildings. So older buildings are usually going to be heavier on the maintenance. So you might want to adjust that because you have older plumbing, um, older electrical, everything like that. If you buy a brand new building, you're probably not going to be spending as much on plumbing and electrical and that sort of thing as far as repairs and maintenance and even capex are concerned so by the time you sell that building in 20 30 years you may not even have had to do many repairs to those main systems to the house so you do have to use a little bit of logic there um additionally i like to point out that when it comes to that stuff preventative maintenance can save you a lot of money So, for instance, making sure that you're doing like a yearly furnace maintenance instead of having emergency repairs come up, you can just do a yearly maintenance and that'll prevent a lot of your heat out calls that you might get from tenants where they charge you an emergency rate. And then instead of a $65 checkup, you're paying a $300 repair to fix a $10 part. So, you know, that preventative maintenance can kind of help. Um John, do you have any other like examples that you've come across so far? For us, I would say I think the spreadsheet is a very helpful exercise because it helps just give you the relative scale of these different expenses and how to think about them. So, you know, your roof is going to be very, very expensive. Um, and then, you know, for example, a refrigerator uh, is actually surprisingly affordable. So, you know, just kind of having that order of operations um, and understanding mm-hmm. how old your systems are in the house. And then basically from there, you can say, okay, you know, I, pr- I probably have this many years left and I, these are the reserves I need, uh, cash reserves you want to hold back or you want to get to. And uh, I think that to me, that's a worthwhile exercise for everyone to do on their own uh, because it really forces you to have a solid understanding of, you know, well, it doesn't matter that I have galvanized pipe in my house. You know, does it matter? Yeah. You know, how big is this uh, problem when it comes back on your inspection report, for example? So, yeah, that makes sense. I also want to point out too, like, it's useful to have a certain minimum that you think about when you think about this stuff, because the cost no matter what kind of neighborhood you're in in a given market, you could be in the most expensive neighborhood or the cheapest neighborhood. And usually the cost to maintain your basic symptom, uh, systems is relatively similar. So, I mean, getting a plumber to your house if you're in the nicest part of town is the same price as the cheapest, like the 
least nice part of town. Um, we would call that the worst part of town, I guess. Least nice is uh, <laughs> I, I did a major in English. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing to point out. So I'd like to tell people like, if you need a rule of thumb to not go below $200 per month on like a small thing is kind of the amount that I say like, okay, no matter what, you have in your calculations don't go below that because the reason i picked 200 is because over 25 years which is the life of a roof you would have set aside about sixty thousand dollars and when you kind of run through most of the stuff that you would fix on a house and you do that calculation usually kind of comes out under sixty thousand dollars for you to have replaced everything in that house like a few times over depending on its life expectancy there's always unexpected things but i just that exercise just logically kind of makes sense with me on a single family house you can probably knock it down a bit um because i wouldn't foresee you spending sixty thousand dollars in 25 years on like a typical single family house at least not in the pittsburgh market um and you obviously have to adjust those numbers to your area too I mean, like a roof in Pittsburgh costs about eight grand on a single family house. So if you're in a place where a single family house roof costs 12, 16, whatever, you're going to need to modify those numbers. But my basic point is you just want to have a minimum set because if you have something that rents for like a house that rents for $700 a month, well, you might only be reserving if you do 5%, for instance, $35 a month. But when you have those big expenses, that $35 a month is going to cover nothing. So, like, you just need to be more rational than just blindly putting numbers into a spreadsheet. Like, think critically about the numbers that you're using to analyze these things. Um, And a lot of the basics on CapEx and maintenance we talked about in the last question. But that's just a little bit extra about those two items. Since, to be honest, those are the two most variable items all the other things that you withhold for are relatively consistent, but CapEx and maintenance, I think are the two things that fluctuate the most. Yeah. I think, you know, candidly, people are probably asking this question because they feel like, you know, it's 2000, it's 2020, early 2020 right now. It's hard. The market is kind of, it's a seller's market and they're most likely wondering, how do I find a deal that pencils out? Am I doing my expenses wrong? That's my intuition about sort of the background for these questions anyway. And uh, to me, uh, to kind of double down on your point, it's like, yeah, if you uh, you can run the numbers super tight and super optimized uh, on the expense side and make the deal work, but you might, you know, uh, you'll, you'll win the deal and lose the war sort of a thing, I think. So, you know, it's better to be, I think, overly cautious in your underwriting, uh, pass on the extra deal and uh, work with uh, an agent who uh, in, essentially has the experience that you're looking for to help guide you if, if you're on the market too long and you can't find a deal. You know, they can mm-hmm. rein in some of your assumptions based on your very specific market. Um, that, that's my guess as to why we're getting this question, you know, more yeah. right now. And I do that exercise with my customers all the time. Like I usually just tell them, hey, send me your spreadsheet I'm not going to like force you into the model that I use, but I'll tell you if your spreadsheet's like reasonable or not reasonable, whether it's too high or not enough or whatever. Um, 
the other point being that you also do need to factor a little bit in like the type of building that you're buying because obviously your repairs are going to be a lot more if you're buying a busted house than they are if you're buying something like great condition owner renovated it top to bottom that goes back to the age the point that i made about the age of the house but it also goes to what the how the prior owner maintained their stuff too because if you go into a house and the previous owner didn't like ever do anything well you're probably going to bet that the furnace the hot water tanks all the plumbing everything's going to go bad pretty quickly but if you have a building where the owner has pretty detailed maintenance records they can provide to you they've been doing a good job then you're less likely to have stuff pop up right away so you'll have a smoother more predictable (laughs) ride um the only other caveat too is like when you buy a building, don't be turned off by the first year because the first year of owning a building is always the heaviest with regards to like how many repairs you need to make because the before an owner sells the building, they're always just kind of patching it up because they know they're selling it. So they're not going to do the right long-term fix usually. So your first year is going to be the worst. And then after the first year or two, things will start to normalize from there and you should have like, they'll follow your numbers that you estimated a bit more closely. Yeah. That's been completely true in our experience as well. Yeah. At least six months. And then over six months, you find out all the boo-boos usually. (laughs) Very good. Let's jump into our next question. Hey, what's going on? This is Dave and I'm a real estate investor in the Pittsburgh area. Um, one thing that my dad and I do is we uh, we like to do all the home improvement stuff ourselves, but sometimes there are some instances where we have to get a contractor out to maybe fix a gutter or maybe do some roofing and stuff like that. And I have a whole lot of experience dealing with contractors, and I just want to know that the work's going to be done right. And how do I how do I do that? How do I work with contractors to make sure I know I'm getting a good price and I know that the work's being done properly? Thanks, guys. So a couple of different things. Uh, we've had other contractor questions in the past, but um, one thing is to make sure that you have a good price, you really want to make sure that you're getting multiple bids. Um, prior to even getting those bids, if it's a bigger job, you might ask around. Once you've used somebody a few times, um, I don't really bid them out anymore out of respect for the contractor's time. But at first, it's useful to get a lot of different bids or... Um, if it's a bigger project, always always get the three bids there. Um, to make sure that the work's being done well, you said that you do stuff yourself already. So the useful thing there is that you do have some mechanical knowledge and know-how. So it's always useful to have that background so that you know you're not getting ripped off. However, you could also look up online how things are supposed to be done. That way you don't end up uh, paying for something that you shouldn't pay for or you just are a little bit more knowledgeable of a customer, and that helps you out. I guess we can talk more generally, though. Uh, John, do you have anything that I guess you've come up with while you've been working with contractors or anything like that? I mean, I have a few more points here, but I don't want to just ramble on too long. Yeah, a big believer in the get at least three bids for everything. I would also say there's kind of two brands of contractors we've run into uh there's ones that work for a big company and they'll actually send a sales uh person out so this person usually has like a branded polo on and they're going to take 
uh, notes, but they're not actually going to do the work. And in my experience, that's uh, a bad sign. I would much rather be working with, you know, I want the guy who's taking measurements for the job, you know, the, also to be the one that's going to be doing the work. So uh, I guess it depends on exactly what type of work you're doing here, but in terms of like bathroom remodeling or anything, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a roof is fairly standardized. Uh, doing your bathroom remodel is less standardized. So I look for guys that have sunburn. Uh, I want to see how they run their tape measure and see if they're really good with the tape measure. Uh, you know, are they folding in half when they measure and hitting the ceiling? Uh, you can just tell. It's hard to describe, but you, you can just tell. Uh, you know, do they have a carpenter's pencil or do they have a regular pencil? Those are all the <laughs> kinds of things I actually look for when I'm talking to somebody. So if they're like clean shaven and they have nice jeans, that's a like kind of a red flag for me in terms of uh, I'm dealing with a sales guy who's like selling me a product and going to try and talk me into like what they do versus uh, a craftsman, if that makes sense. That's I don't know. What do you think yeah. of that? Um, I think it also depends how you're doing your job. Because, like, if you're hiring a general contractor to do everything, then I kind of agree with you in that you want somebody that's actually been the one to do the work and, like, not just a salesperson. You want the person that actually knows what they're doing. Like, if you're hiring a general contractor to, I don't know, mostly general carpentry to be honest like general carpentry type stuff but when it comes to flooring or roofing or windows um stuff like that a lot of times i don't mind the just salesperson type contractor uh roofing's hit or miss because usually if a roofing has a sales department then they're usually too expensive for me to like <laughs> hire but windows for sure i almost always because the bigger companies with windows can just get them cheaper and yeah. their prices are always more competitive same thing with flooring like a lot of times when it comes to uh actual new install flooring well especially carpet like going with bigger company sales guys always easier but anything that has like a more complicated scope of work than just like rip out what is here and put in something new. Um, that's where having somebody who actually has some experience is useful. Um, even if they're going to sub out the job, they probably should have some knowledge as to what's going on. Um, so yeah, for me, uh, to give some examples, we've had roofers and for that, you know, it feels much more like the rip out, replace kind of uh, conversation. We had someone come in and look at uh, like a basement foundation solution. And uh, we had one guy who recommended a product that candidly wouldn't have worked. Uh, and he was, you know, he was the sales guy, this like computer he was typing everything into. It was like a huge red flag. I was like, okay, this guy like has never actually done an install. So there's no way this is going to be right. And then with bathroom contractors uh we've had guys that sub it out the the challenge is a lot of times they don't understand like oh well when i rip out the tub i'm also gonna have to remove this drywall and uh i find that you can get into cost overruns because they you know and you know even if you structure the contract correctly so that they bear the expense of kind of misquoting things you know it's just um I don't know how to describe it other than to say it's just nice to have it go smoothly and have everyone 
kind of on the same page and have expectations match outcomes, which never actually happens 100%, but that experience can be useful. Yeah. Even if they're not the one actually doing the work, having it be like the owner that oversees his guys or something is useful, guys and gals, I suppose. Um, Then... uh, then just like somebody who like you said just shows up in like a polo and they're a sales guy and (laughs) whatever um but like i said there's certain things that don't really make a difference and to be honest the more experienced you are i think that also helps because like you said with the foundation thing i mean for me i kind of know like I have a general idea on foundations and what the possible solutions might be. I mean, I always defer to the professional, but like if somebody tells me they can use carbon fiber straps and it's like the house is sinking, (laughs) then I know that's not really the right thing. You need to put like piers underneath it to hold up the foundation wall. Um, Because each, and to be honest, you don't even need to have experience doing that stuff. You just need to actually Google your problem before you talk to the person so that you can be knowledgeable enough so that they know they can't rip you off. Like, that's a really useful thing. Like, do your research before. Don't just trust them blindly. Have a basic idea of the words that they're using because contractors are just as bad as, like, doctors and lawyers and any kind of technical person. They're going to use the jargon from their own trade to just make you feel like an outsider when really the stupid words that they used are like, just all you had to do is Google and you'll know what they're talking about. Like, cause roofers are roofers do it all the time. For instance, roofers, they always talk about how many square a roof is, which is so stupid. Like it's the only thing we measure in terms of a random measurement. They don't say square feet. They say square. And I'm pretty sure square is just 10 by 10, like a hundred square feet. So it's like, <laughs> you have to use this stupid word just to make me not understand how you're pricing my job. That's like yeah. part of it. Yeah, I think uh, so. What is useful? Like, if, if you already had the contractor, you wouldn't ask this question, or it's not useful to you. But something that is useful is thinking, you know, you want the best contractors. And a good way to get the best contractors is to be really good to work with. And a good mm-hmm. way to be really good to work with is to actually think about like, if I was gonna do this myself, how would I do it? What tools are required? You know, So when I give a bill of materials to the guy and I'm like, this is exactly what we want, we're gonna order it from Lowe's, you tell me what day you want it here and we'll get it here. You know, We can do all that kind of stuff for him. Um, they, they like that to a certain degree. You don't want to be like super anal about it to where they're like, okay, this person's crazy, but you want to look prepared, uh, knowledgeable, and you want to facilitate like, you know, you have to think these are contractors, so they're not typically super computer savvy. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. want to be answering emails, their phone people, you know, so you have to kind of think about like, what does this person's day look like? You know, when do they wrap their day? When do they start? Um, and you like, they want to call you when they're already in the car driving to the job or driving home from a job or mm-hmm. from the hardware store. Right. So, you know, just thinking about, um, uh, how to interact with these people so that when you do find a good contractor or when you're searching for good contractors, they're like, Oh, this is a client I'm going to want to work with. Cause they're not going to like jerk me around. They're not going to like, you know, 
nitpick me on things that aren't important or give me a hard time when things go wrong, uh, if that makes sense. So, and, and for me, that has helped certainly me establish good relationships with the contractors I want to keep. Uh, yeah. And on those general things, my other piece of advice is if you have multiple properties and you're working with a new contractor, like it could even be two properties, always give them like a, if you can give them like a small job first and see how they perform. Because if you give them a small job and they actually show up and do it and treat it like a priority, then you know that that's somebody that you can trust to do a bigger job. That's not, I mean, if they don't do this thing, sometimes it could just mean that the job was too small for them and they're not into that. But at the same time, it's good to try to do that. And my last point of advice is you said the thing about getting three bids, like never, never, never just pick the cheapest one. Like, that's the biggest mistake that I see new people do. It's fine to pick the cheapest person, but if you're going to pick the cheapest person, you should definitely do more due diligence on that contractor. As far as like references, maybe if it's a big job, you want to ask them to see one of their job sites that they've worked on. Um, that sort of thing. I mean, if it's like an $800 job, like, right. Don't. <laughs> And you, if you ask, if it's an $800 job and you ask to see one of their job sites, you just sound like an idiot. Yeah. So, but like, if you're doing like a $40,000 rehab project, like they should be able to show you something that they've done. And like, you should be able to talk to a con like a, you know, a current customer and everything like that, at least. Yeah. We've, um, even, we've even just asked for like a $10,000 remodel you know we just we ask them and they're either like for sure you know i have it or they like it or they waffle and you know even that's like you almost don't even have to follow up with it you can kind of just tell yeah uh, and know your state rules on how much you they can actually take up front too because most of the time contractors ask for 50 percent up front and like that's not even at least in pennsylvania they're not even allowed to ask for 50 percent up front i think it's like 30% or something. Uh, I'd have to look it up to know the actual amount. So don't quote me, but they have like a, only a certain amount they're allowed to ask for up front. I believe they can ask for materials in addition to that, but they can only ask for so much labor up front and 50% is more than what they're actually allowed to do. Mm. So scheduling the contracts by based on deliverables is far more effective than scheduling the contractors based on how much up front, how much at the end anyway. Like if you pay them 20% when the demo is done, 20% when the drywall's up, 20 more percent when they have the drywall finished, 20% when the paint is done, and then 20% whenever all of their punch list is done. Like structuring the contract that way so they actually have a carrot to keep pushing them through the job. And then structuring penalties into the contract too um, can sometimes work. Like if you finish two weeks over you make so much less same thing with incentives. Like if you finish a week early, you get an extra $500 or something, whatever it is. But then eventually once you've used a contractor a few times, like the people who I've used frequently, I don't do upfront contracts with anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I probably should, but we just sign like a, we don't even sign anything anymore. I just get their insurance <laughs> you know, 
they ask they don't because most of my contractors don't even ask me for anything up front either anymore they don't ask me for like hey can you pay me this much to start they just start and then they because they know that i'm gonna pay them so it's like because we've pay all of our contractors like the day after they invoice us at yeah. least it's a lot of times it's within hours so they'll send us an invoice and we pay them invoice pay invoice pay so at this point we have relationships with them we're like they'll do the work without anything they just go get it done tell us when it's done tell us what it was and i mean we obviously get an estimate up front but we don't like sign a contract with deliverables and everything like that yeah that makes i mean that makes sense you know uh yeah, yeah. Being, being good to work with, you know, all that, like, call them at the right time, be organized. You know, that's all secondary to, like, make sure you're paying them. Because <laughs> if you don't pay But them, I'll also preface my, the way my business is, most of our jobs aren't, like, like, we're not really gutting everything any, like, most of the time. We're not flipping houses. So if I had, like, a $50,000 house flip, you better believe, even if I've worked with that person 50 times, I'm still going to get a scope of work signed all their expectations outlined and everything. Most of our jobs nowadays are like, Hey, this tenant let their cat pee all over the floor, rip the carpet out, replace the subfloor, put new carpet in, paint yeah. the walls. Okay. Yeah. Even for us, we would, you know, I would recommend just go through the steps with your contract template and, you know, do it on paper anyway. But yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Uh, just to add one extra point, I will say if you can do any of the demo yourself, uh, it actually makes them, a, a lot easier to uh, quote the job, so that can also be uh, really yeah, reduces a lot of the uncertainty. Especially if it's if it's stuff behind the walls, mm-hmm. because if like there's stuff behind the walls going on and they can't see it, they're just going to quote you for the worst case scenario. So if you pay them, I, if either you do the demo like you said, or if you pay them to do the demo first and then quote you on what's behind the walls, you'll usually get a lower estimate than if you just let them guess what they're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap us for today. So let's roll into the outro. Cool. Okay, Tony, just to recap what we talked about, we had expenses. We said 50% rule is pretty good. So it's going to be gross rents minus 50%. And that doesn't include any of your mortgage expense. Uh, You're going to have to use the spreadsheet to back into your CapEx. But we're looking at 5% of gross rents for repairs. 5 to 8% gross rents for vacancy. And then even when you're using those percentages, you need to set a minimum so that you're always uh, kind of in bounds and you're not winding, winding up with a number that's just unreasonably low. And I, th- I think you actually had a rough number for what that was, right? 200? Yeah, like $200 a minimum 200. is what I use in my market. Yeah, we use the same. Uh, and then for contractors, we rambled on quite a bit, but some summary takeaways. Always get three bids. If you can't get three bids, get another bid. You need three bids. Uh, pay for performance and milestones. So make sure that you know you're paying for deliverables, not for time passed or anything like that. And then think about how you would do the job. You know, and that that'll help you kind of understand uh, what materials are required, what labor is required, and when you evaluate the contractor, you'll be able to see if their bid makes sense. So, with that. Let's roll into something you learned this week that you could share with everybody. Yeah. So for me, because we're kind of in this stay at home order in Pennsylvania, I learned that there's a lot of things I could be doing with leasing to make things much more efficient. 
So before we kind of got shut in totally, uh, and it's actually starting to ease up a little bit for property management, like the property management company got a waiver to still be allowed to do their business. Um, we kind of realized that when things are like this, we could, um, like with there's ways to work around physically, like walking through the property with the person. So for instance, we were going up to the door, unlocking the door, waiting outside, or she was actually waiting in the car while somebody went through. Mm. This is just kind of general showing during COVID-19 stuff. And then um, they would finish, go back to their car, and then the leasing agent would go back to the place, shut, make sure everything was locked with like gloves and a wipe and just wipe off like the doorknob and the if there's a keypad, like the numbers and stuff mm-hmm. and then leave. That way there was no face to face contact um, for them. But so that's kind of specific to the COVID-19. But the thing that we realized in this to make things more efficient for us is there's a photography they call Matterport. Mm-hmm. It's usually used by like real estate agents for houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't previously get it, even though I'm a realtor, because the camera originally was like $3,000 and it was like $200 a month to host it. It's actually become a lot more affordable. Um, now it's, uh, I think it's $69 a month and you can have 25 active tours and they actually make a camera that's just like 350 bucks. Wow. So I'm actually going to buy the camera and pay the monthly. Um, number one, it's a benefit as an agent because I can offer it to my customers listing their houses. Sales. But, but the biggest benefit for me is that we can do it for all of our rentals and create virtual walkthroughs for people. And then that'll cut down so much time with physically going to the property. We thought about this because depending on how long all this shutdown goes and everything, you know, we're going to have vacant units we need to fill. If we have a virtual walkthrough, people can lease apartments just from that. Like they can just walk through, see exactly because it's hard to tell from regular still pictures what a place is like. If we have like a virtual walkthrough, a virtual layout, that'll cut down so much wasted time with showing the apartment to people that don't care, that would rule themselves out. Like you can just send that virtual tour to somebody and say, hey, what go through this. If you still need to see it in person, I'll let you in. If you're not interested, then I'm not wasting my time showing up. So yeah. that's kind of my my thing that I learned. This whole shutdown is just making me kind of analyze like a lot of the things that I was doing, thinking about more critically how so much stuff is way easier and more efficient. Like even appointments with customers, like new customers. I actually put a house under contract without it was a referral from a past client i talked to the person on the phone the new person we got a video tour from the listing agent because we're not allowed to show houses they offered had their offer accepted and now they have a house under contract that they can just get the inspection after when the inspector is allowed and like i never even physically met with the person we just did video chat and like did things that way so like a lot of the stuff that previously meeting with people in person 
<laughs> I don't know. Just yeah. different things are being made more efficient yeah, now. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, those. Uh, I've done a couple of those Matterport tours, and they're, I mean, they're really high quality. It's not like the, sometimes there's like the 360 virtual tours, which are just like, here are the different pictures, and it's not really a virtual tour, but those are yeah. fantastic. And uh, yeah. I think they also communicate a professionalism to the prospective tenant that's uh, like, might actually help bump rent a little bit. Yeah, I don't, first, I don't know anybody that takes nice pictures of apartments in Pittsburgh. They're always cell phone pictures. Like that sets us apart. We get real pictures done. And then this is going to be even a whole nother thing because nobody's paying that money for a pro, like a property management company's not buying one of those and doing it. It's really not even that expensive, but whatever. So yeah, what, uh, what have you learned this week? Yeah. Well, even before we go forward, I'll also say, hey, you you also have the walkthrough done. Like, So when a tenant moves in, you know what quality the place is in. So you, you also have a nice little document for the uh, yeah, security. That's true. Process. If you do one every time, we're usually lazy and we just reuse the pictures. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, good point. For me, I think, boy, the skeptical version of this would be something like I learned not to trust like the government on what they tell you. But basically, you know, what's going on now is there's, uh, you can put your mortgage into forbearance um, and they say it won't impact your credit, which is true. It doesn't impact your credit score. But if you go to borrow again, they do penalize you for going into forbearance because your prior 12 to 24 payment history uh, is impacted. So that was a very solid takeaway for us we did some homework uh related to that and um even though you know kind of the the messaging from up high is like everything is forgiven everything you know it's all gravy so to speak uh kind of the the truth under the you know if, if you do a little digging and you don't take things uh for what people are just telling you uh basically for all the govy loans uh it i didn't like, know that looks like you will be penalized so just penalized as far as being able to get a mortgage in the future? Yeah, so we, we borrow. We don't have an LLC, so we borrow as individuals. So our personal mm-hmm. payment history is critical. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah. Hmm. something you have to look into. The uh, debt to income or the debt ratio for FHA loans became more restrictive too this mm-hmm. week. Uh we're recording this is like not now not timely because we might be record releasing this later but um if they haven't changed that by the time this comes out you might just want to look at what your back end debt ratio is to see how that uh to see if fha is even still a good option for you because a lot of that changed the credit scores that they were doing changed um all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. So my take, my takeaway is you can't just you know, uh, can't read US USA Today and be like, oh great, <laughs> you have to you, trust but verify. I don't have to pay my bills anymore. Yeah, trust, hooray! Trust but verify. Uh, yeah, awesome. Well, I think with that, let's send them off. Yep. Have a great one, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want more, check us out at BeFreeRE on Instagram. And let us know what you thought. Stay free.